I'm delighted to introduce today my guest, Alexis Cyril from Warshaw Bernstein in New York, a partner in the matrimonial and family group, widely known as the recognized leader in the evolving area of reproductive family law. Alexis was instrumental in the very recent passage of the Child Parent Security Act, legislation that legalizes gestational surrogacy in New York State. Hello, Alexis. Hi, Sarah. This was an enormous piece of legislation. Can you tell us how long it was in the making? Oh my gosh, it is an enormous piece of legislation. 2012 really was when it started in earnest. And it started with a a colleague of mine, an attorney who formerly did adoptions here and had a surrogacy case that she tried to do through an adoption lens legally and could not get it done. And it was that that motivated her. And she linked up with Assemblywoman Amy Pollan and they got to work, but it was a long time. What were the main reasons for the opposition, the resistance to it? Oh gosh, where do I start, right? It's so strange because you think of New York as a progressive state, but the opposition was anything but progressive. The opposition was concerns about unequal bargaining power for the surrogates and the intended parents, concerns about commoditizing women, concerns about babies for sale, handmaid's tale type concerns that really feels backwards in a state like New York. And shockingly and disturbingly, I should say, a lot of the opposition was from women's groups. And the role that I played was certainly small compared to some of the Herculean efforts of other people in the legislature and and the governor, et cetera, but where I could impact. And that was in some of the women's bar groups. So among women attorneys. What was the state of surrogacy before? New York was one of two states where it was not just against public policy, but it was actually criminalized. So it goes back to late 80s, early 90s. There was a case called Baby M. It was a New Jersey case but it really set the tone for the law that followed in New Jersey and in New York. And that was a case where a traditional surrogate or a genetic surrogate, um, meaning the woman had a connection genetically, despite having signed a surrogacy agreement with the intended parents, wanted to keep the baby. And there was a long drawn out custody battle that ensued. And from that, both New Jersey and New York put laws in place that prohibited surrogacy, both compensated and uncompensated were against public policy under the domestic relations law. And if you were to compensate, in addition to being unenforceable, there could be civil penalties and criminal penalties. So I'm I'm delighted to welcome Sheba Talabian from CCRM New York. Hello. Hi. I did a retrieval. I did an embryo transfer. How amazing is that? You're like, you're so impressed. (laughs) I love doing embryo transfers. Um, That's when there's hope. That's like, that's like the hopeful moment, right? Yes. I know exactly. You said it very correctly. That's the hopeful moment. And I wish it was a hundred percent. Obviously it's not, but just keep trying. I was just talking to Alexis about the introduction of the Child and Parent Security Act. But before that, how were you involved in surrogacy arrangements? For the past handful of years, I practiced fertility medicine in New York City. But 
Prior to that, I did work briefly for satellite office in New Jersey where surrogacy was legal. So I had some experience initially early on in my career as a fertility doctor working with surrogates and coordinating those cycles. But then when I transitioned back to working in New York City, paid surrogacy was not legal here. So anyone... um, you know, needing a surrogate, if the embryos were created here, we would link them up with a CCRM affiliate around the country where surrogacy was legal and the embryos had to be transported out of the state to another facility. It was certainly doable because New Yorkers needed surrogates as well. It just made it a very complicated process and involved all of a sudden introducing the intended parents, a whole new team of doctors, team of nurses, people who didn't really know them and weren't involved in their care. And the transporting of embryos was obviously super stressful as well. So Alexis, you were saying that the bill is now enacted, it's live, but there's talk of a cleanup bill already. Yes, there is. It's coming soon. From started in 2012, it went through many, many, many iterations. And there were many changes that were made and then unmade, made and then unmade. And then at the last minute, we were able to get it into the governor's budget. And time was of the essence. So there were some things that needed to be cleaned up. And that should be coming out soon. In addition to the legislation, you also have the regulatory side with the Surrogates Bill of Rights, which is also a massive piece of regulation, and there's nothing else like it. That's right. Yeah, there are concerns, but the New York law was going to be the gold standard because of things like the Surrogates Bill of Rights, which is a statement of her substantive rights pursuant to the surrogacy arrangement and the surrogacy agreement that can't be waived. So meaning you can't contract out of them, right? That it would be an unenforceable contract provision to say that any of these things is waived. So there are there are parallel regulations that have been issued by the Department of State and they regulate the medical service providers. So like Dr. Talabian and the matching programs, they dictate licensure for the matching programs and a registration process for the medical service providers. Yeah. So how does it work in practice, Dr. Salabria? I was looking at the guidelines for even the sort of over-donation, and I haven't seen anything quite like that before. Right. So it's interesting reading through the bill and some of the materials distributed by the Department of Health. There's definitely been some changes with respect even to egg donation in the state of New York. So one of the significant changes is they're starting a registry for donors where the donor can opt either in or out to be a part of the registry. Um, And I, I think this is like the first hint of some sort of regulation of ovum donation in this country. So that is probably one of the biggest changes. There's some subtle changes by the Department of Health um, directed egg donors and anonymous donors and um, some of the guidelines and medical screening. Previously, a known donor could potentially, for example, test positive for chlamydia, be treated and um, cycle within a few months. But if we are reading these um, requirements pretty carefully, that's that's not really allowed anymore, that known donors also have to be really held to the same standards as anonymous donors with respect to a lot of testing and infectious disease testing. The other interesting change is, you know, sperm banks have been around for decades and there's a very standardized protocol 
uh, for a sperm donation, you know, sperm potential donor goes in, does all the required screening, does required infectious disease testing, deposits a sample, and it's held in quarantine for six months. And then the sperm donor goes back and gets retested in another physical exam, confirming no evidence of any sort of infectious communicable disease. And this sample then is now, quote unquote, released. And but if you think about it, you know, that sperm sample, when it's eventually used, has been tested twice in quarantine for six months. And the FDA had always required that. Now, egg donors never were held to that same standard because egg freezing it, it was not a mainstream technology until just a handful of years ago. And so most egg donation cases are fresh. And so from a communicable disease standpoint, yes, they're all screened with infectious disease testing at the time within 30 days of the egg extraction, but they're not screened again six months later before those eggs are either fertilized or used in the intended parent. Um, and so the bill, this also some of the new guidelines recommending that we as fertility doctors offer to our intended parents who are using an egg donor, you know, either the option to freeze the egg first and retest in six months or to fertilize, but then go back and retest that donor six months later to confirm that there's been no change in their status with respect to an infectious disease. So that's also a change, um, you know, in terms of trying to protect the intended parents as well for any communicable diseases. The intended parent can certainly decline that and say time is of the essence and, and we don't feel the need to do that. But it's actually stated that we have to counsel the intended parents that this should be offered. My suspicion is that probably many IPs will not want to wait that time frame, you know, to wait a full six months. I think for many women who are going the egg donor route, they don't want to wait that time frame. Would you agree, Alexis? I yeah, think I'm nodding. Yeah. <laughs> I think once people get to us, they're in, in a hurry. That's yeah. right. That's it's, right. So I was just looking at the um, clinical guidelines as well for the screening of the gestational surrogate. Yeah. So in terms of screening, whether it's the egg donor or the GC in the new guidelines, it's actually, from my standpoint, really no different than what we've been doing. So I'll just say when you um, say GC, you mean the gestational carrier. Yeah, exactly. To clarify. So I would say high standard uh, centers already practice that same way. So in terms of the psychological screening, the medical screening, um, infection screening. These are all basically ASRM slash FDA um, guidelines that they're following. Um, I didn't really pick up anything new in the in the recommended screening that we don't already do. I'll just say one one more thing going back to the opposition you what we were talking about earlier that a lot of what we were hearing was just based on people who were not familiar with the process from the from the medical perspective either. And so they didn't know that these regulations on the screening were already being applied. So there were concerns that it was just going to be this wild, wild west, completely unregulated. How are we going to make sure that proper screening mental health wise physically was going to take place? And we tried to share the ASRM guidelines, you know, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine with people to say, look, by the time they come to you as a, as a lawyer, or by the, by the time they come to the court to say parentage, um, they've been through 
such a long process of vetting each other, vetting themselves, that a lot of the concerns really were based on just a lack of knowledge and a lack of information about really what the assisted reproductive technology world is. I would say many New York centers were allowing or were um, still working with altruistic GCs. Obviously not a very common uh, route, uh, but, you know, over the years we had at least a couple cases a year. And it's, it's the same. It's this high standard and it's applied to the altruistic cases as well. There's a whole history and evolution of IVF as well that has impacted the way we do these GC cases nowadays. Back then, we weren't really very good at freezing embryos or doing chromosomal screening of embryos. So most GC cases were fresh transfers, which was obviously a little more complicated. But as IVF technology improved and the technology to freeze embryos improved and then the technology to chromosomally screen the embryos, that I think has more or less become the standard of care for most GC cases. Not always. I can't say that every transfer into a GC is a frozen embryo that's been chromosomally screened, but I do think that that's probably the majority of cases and what most fertility doctors are recommending. Um, And so, again, I have that background. So for me, embarking on this, it's not uncharted territory for me. I think for sure for for physicians who have only practiced in New York, who, you know, they just, we routed it elsewhere. And so, you know, you weren't really familiar with how the GC screening process worked. What was that psych evaluation and who needs to be involved in that and record reviews of the of the GC, all of this. But it's all, we are OBGYNs as well. And so it, once things get underway, many, you know, physician REs in, in New York will feel comfortable pursuing this. And probably most centers, I would say, will like sort of assign one physician overseeing the process. There are certain factors that are automatic disqualification, aren't there? Exactly. Yeah, no, uh, you know, the age requirements, et cetera, as well. Presumably it goes hand in hand with the psychological screening and the genetic screening. Right, exactly. Absolutely. That's actually part of the law too, that it's an eligibility requirement that you've gone through the screening, been medically approved, given the proper informed consent. Um, that So there's uh, safety nets, a, a lot of different phases in the process. There's sort of preconditions to entering into the arrangement. Correct. It's one of the eligibility requirements under the statute that in order to participate in an enforceable surrogacy arrangement in our state, among other eligibility requirements is the medical screening. When I talk about chromosomal screening of an embryo, I'm just talking about, you know, the backbone, 46XX, 46XY, make sure there's no chromosomal aberrations uh, before implanting the embryo. There is what that's called a PGTA, pre-implantation genetic testing, aneuploidy screening. There's also something called PGTM, which is uh, monosomic genetic screening. And that's for if the egg and sperm sores carry the same recessive genetic disorder, that's an additional test of the embryo before implant. But um, so we can screen embryos for chromosomes and we can screen them for very, very specified genetic diseases. We don't screen embryos to see if they're a carrier. You have to have um, genetic material from both egg and sperm sores to develop a very specific genetic probe to test the embryo for a genetic disease. You also have the residency requirements. That's right. So unlike other states, 
If you have two intended parents, one of them has to be a U.S. citizen or permanent resident, and one of them has to have been a New York resident for at least six months prior to entering into the agreement. Um, if one intended parent is not a New York resident, you, the surrogate also has to be a New York resident. It's a little strange, but they, there is an exception. If there's a single intended parent and that single intended parent is not a New York resident, but the surrogate is, they can benefit from the New York law as well. And prior to entering into the surrogacy agreement, both parties would have separate counsel. Yes. So another one of the eligibility factors is independent counsel paid for by the intended parents of the surrogate's own choosing. So when you're going through your checklist of your initial intake meeting with your intended parent clients or your surrogate clients, you know, these are all the things you want to talk about. Are you a New York resident or United States citizen? Have you undergone the medical screening? Have you given the informed consent after being advised of the risks? Independent legal counsel. And then we get into some of the other ones which are in the surrogate's bill of rights, but that's going into the substantive rights and obligations under the contract. The statute is very specific. The independent counsel for both parties has to be engaged throughout the entire pregnancy and for 12 months thereafter. So if there are issues that arise after the birth of the child, the legal engagement is still there and the intended parents are still required to provide the fees for the counsel for the surrogate. And this is because there are ongoing obligations under the contract for 12 months after birth. One of them, and this comes to another one of the surrogate's bill of rights elements is um, that all surrogates shall have uh, comprehensive medical and health insurance in place. That has to be in place before embryo transfer. And that has to extend for 12 months post-birth or pregnancy termination. So, you know, it makes sense that there's a continuing legal obligation while there are contractual obligations that persist. Another of the surrogate's bill of rights items is life insurance. So the intended parents must purchase life insurance for the benefit of the surrogate who um, must be able to choose who the beneficiaries are. And there's a pretty astronomical dollar figure attached to what the death benefit is. And right now the statute says $750,000. I don't know whether that's going to change in the cleanup bill. I think it might, but right now it is a requirement that there's a life insurance policy in place prior to embryo transfer that extends 12 months after birth or termination of pregnancy. The policies must be expensive. Yes, the policies are expensive. And then there are the big items that you would expect, the right to all to make all health and welfare decisions about her body, right? This is number one on the surrogate's bill of rights conceptually, of course, that no matter what a contract says, and it would be an unenforceable provision anyway, there's no specific performance. You cannot require that a surrogate undergoes a, ch- a pregnancy termination. You cannot require that she not terminate if there's a medical issue. You cannot take away her right to choose, for example, if she wants to have a cesarean section. You cannot take away her right and in the contract to choose who her medical provider will be. So for example, if she has her own children and she wants to deliver with her own OB, not with who the intended parents maybe select, that's a right that can't be contracted out of. Um, So there's 
really a lot of protections built in. And this bill of rights has to be given to the surrogate by the matching program, by the IVF clinic, by her lawyer. She'll have a million copies of it when the whole process is said and done. And can I ask both of you, is there a nervousness around multiple pregnancies, twins, for example? Medically now it's single embryo transfer, but that's also one of the things that we talk about when you're discussing potential areas of conflict during the surrogate pregnancy. Even if you transfer one embryo, it splits and you have twins. And, you know, there are questions about fetal reduction. And again, those are all in the category of medical decisions that the surrogate alone has the authority to make. So going back to the evolution of IVF, and as we have improved our technology, really at CCRM New York, our gold standard is a single embryo transfer with that embryo being chromosomally screened. So it's actually very, very rare for us here to put in more than one embryo at a time. I understand that sometimes with uh, gestational surrogacy, the intended parents want to maybe maximize the odds of that first implant working, maybe if their goal is more than one child to try to get that done at once. But we have to have very thorough, extensive counseling with the intended parents, with the surrogate regarding the risk of multiples. We also require what we call a maternal fetal medicine consult for the surrogate. Uh, which means we want to make sure that surrogate does a discussion with a high-risk OB in particular who can counsel regarding what are the risks of carrying twins to both the surrogate as well as to the babies. So that is part of the medical decision-making process. But again, with the improvement of IVF treatment and success rates, really the goal is a single embryo transfer, even when using a surrogate. And we know that the surrogacy matching programs are are licensed. Are there guidelines in terms of the compensation? That's a good question. There's no guidelines in terms of the base compensation other than it has to be an amount that's negotiated in good faith. It has to be an amount that represents a payment for the um, for the responsibilities she's undertaking, for the physical discomfort, you're not paying for a child. That's kind of one category. But the reimbursement of expenses and the payment of health insurance and the payment of legal counsel, that is regulated. And the answer there is it costs what it costs. So any medical um, expense is the obligation of the intended parents, regardless of the dollar figure. Can you tell us a bit about the embryo transfer itself? Most uh, centers will be working with frozen embryos. So most often it's called a frozen embryo transfer. And the standard is most likely going to be what we call a programmed frozen embryo transfer versus a natural frozen embryo transfer. Both are options, but probably from a medical perspective in the surrogate, a program transfer is essentially one where we're suppressing the surrogate's natural ovulation. So she's not actually naturally ovulating herself. So birth control pills, potentially medication called Lupron, and what those are doing are suppressing the natural ovulation. And then she takes estrogen to build the uterine lining. And then progesterone gets added in on top of the estrogen. And then the transfer is either done depending on the center's protocol, the fifth, the sixth, or the seventh day of that progesterone exposure. And the transfer process itself is, I I equate it to to a pap smear. 
woman comes in, we ask her to have a relatively full bladder, speculum is placed, we visualize the cervix. Um, the full bladder is because we are usually um, doing these ultrasound guided. So, uh, you know, an assistant, a nurse, uh, another physician is doing an ultrasound abdominally to visualize the uterus. And it's a very, very, very delicate catheter that goes through the cervix. The embryo is microscopic and, you know, we try to place it at the top of the uterus under ultrasound guidance. Most women, you know, do not require any pain meds or any anesthesia for the process. Generally, in a surrogate who's probably had deliveries before, it should be a pretty easy, smooth process, but it really should only take a couple minutes to do. There really shouldn't be any pain or cramping at the time of the transfer. And would it be usual for intended parents to to want to be part of that process? Right. So in the past, when I did this or in altruistic cases, exactly. So we can most certainly offer to the intended parent or parents uh, to be in the room at the time up by by the surrogate's shoulders and heads and kind of watching the process. Exactly. So Alexis, it's a pre-birth order state, New York, which which is great. Right. Part of what makes it the gold standard here, you know, is we want to make this, this, this is a parentage law at the end of the day, right? People say, oh, it's the surrogacy law. It's the um, updated ART law. It's a parentage law. And it basically allows you to get a pre-birth judgment of parentage. So technically the statute says you can go for the judgment anytime after the contract is executed. I don't, know why anybody would do it until there's a confirmed pregnancy that will be a sustained pregnancy. So generally somewhere around the second trimester, the attorneys who were representing the parties in the contract negotiation phase will petition the court. There are forms that have been issued by the family court and they're being revised a little bit now, but you can also bring it in Supreme Court or surrogates court. And you certify to the court that Everything that's in the agreement complies with the statute. You request an order of parentage and you have that in hand long before the baby is born. And, you know, the benefits of that are just so far reaching. You avoid issues like you and I have talked about before, Sarah, the baby having medical insurance coverage upon birth. This baby is the legal child of the intended parents from the second he or she is born. So with that, flows all the rights of a child. And then there's no further court intervention at that point. The intended parents can just get the birth certificate. Their names will go on. There will be no mention of the surrogate or her spouse if she has one. Is it an in-person hearing? It's not designed to be a hearing. It's designed to be more efficient process than that. My prediction is that it's a new thing, right? And judges are going to want to be Um, particularly scrutinizing of the agreements and make sure that they're really complying. I I do think that over time, it will probably not require any in-person appearance. Um, It may at the very beginning if judges have questions about the contracts. Before you can obtain that pre-birth order, there's consent from the surrogate. It's the agreement itself. And then there's a a separate standalone statement that she voluntarily entered into the agreement. And in terms of the birth, what would you advise everybody to be there? Would you send the pre-birth order in advance to the hospital so they know who to expect? Yes. 
Yes, 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 yes. The professional organizations that are going to have to get up to speed very quickly are right the 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 court system because this is a new foreign thing and they're going to be all of a sudden asked to issue these per birth orders and the hospitals the hospitals in New York have aside from you know a handful of altruistic cases probably it's very foreign even in states where surrogacy is practiced i think a lot of the medical staff are kind of like wait who are these other people in the delivery room right um so these again are things that we encourage the parties to talk about, have a plan put even in the contract, who can be in the room at delivery, but absolutely with the rights of being a parent come obligations. And so the second that baby is born, the parents have all obligations of a child and the surrogate has none. So they better be there, right? They better be there. But you know, you make a good point. Just think about when you think about down to the details of, for example, wrist bracelets, right? ID ID bracelets given at hospitals. Nobody's going to know who to put the bracelet on. And I know a lot of hospitals have only two bracelet rule for security reasons, right? So it's like, okay, so who gets the two bracelets? These are things that I assume will get worked out over time, I hope. But yeah, there's going to have to be a lot of baby steps. And the birth certificate, how long would that take? everything would be the same. So, you know, just but like when you, before you leave the hospital, when you give birth, you go into the uh, records room and you fill out your paperwork and then you get it something in the mail two weeks later, it would be the exact same process. In terms of the cleanup bill, what do you think the issues are that need addressing? Well, some things that were just typo type things, you know, little reference to part three when it should have said part two, internal inconsistencies like that. But some of them are bigger issues. For example, I know that there were issues with $750,000 death benefit on the life insurance policies. Some surrogates won't qualify for that amount. And I think there was an issue with the insurance industry. So I think they were going to redraft that provision. Do you think the condition of residency will stay as it is? Yes, I do think so. Thank you for listening. And so many thanks to my guests, Alexis Cyril from Walshaw Bernstein and Dr. Shiva Talabian from CCRM, New York.